3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, the true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Welcome to 3CR. This is Tuesday Breakfast and you're here with me, Carnegie and Fung. Hello. Just us. Yeah. Weird. (laughs) It's Um, so quiet this morning. Yeah. Um, so it is the 5th of October at 7am. Um, it is bizarre weather, has been bizarre weather, oh. super windy, it snowed yesterday. So yesterday I was sitting at home, I live um, in St Kilda and it wasn't sunny but it was fine, it was, wasn't was rainy or anything and then I go on Instagram and all these people are sharing images and videos of hail and snow. Yeah. Absolutely bizarre. I couldn't believe it. It's so wild. I thought I was being scammed. Yeah. <laughs> but that's my MO at the moment because... So just before um, coming on air, Carnegie and I have been talking about Squid Game, which is probably the number one show at the moment. Yeah. Um, it's hard to It's hard to really provide like a synopsis of the show without giving it away. Yeah, but as an overall theme, I feel like most people would have watched it. No spoilers either way, but as an overall theme, yeah, a lot of (laughs) very stressful. Very stressful. Um, And there's been some interesting conversations on the socials about the subtitles and the dubbing of the show. Um, Some people have pointed out that the messages that you get through the subtitles and the dubbing um i guess dilute or sanitize the message a little bit yeah i've seen a bit of stuff about that and because my background's indian and i watch bollywood movies with my australian friends and my partner all the time i know the struggle so intensely the bad dubbing and the bad and you just sit there the whole time being like you're not getting the same experience as me and i want you to watch Mm -hmm. this and it just kills you i wonder if you could ever really accurately reflect what's being said though Mm. i I like i feel like you know i'm from a vietnamese background and there are some words that you can't even translate into english Mm. that would capture so much yeah. history or cultural meaning well I think definitely some things will get lost no mm. matter what because I, I don't think in English really encapsulates a lot of things from other languages but having said that I think more effort could definitely I, I think maybe they don't it's like underfunded or something I feel yeah. there's people out there who could do it better yeah 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 all right well if anyone from Netflix listens to our show yes and could um, better resource the subtitle or dubbing 
divisions. <laughs> Please. Please. Please do so. Speaking of languages, mm. um, first up this morning, we've got an interview with Rose Barrowcliff. I spoke to her last week. She's a bachelor woman, researcher and doctoral candidate, and we spoke about the recent uh win for the Bachelor community in that uh, what was not formerly known as Fraser Island is now officially known as Gari, which is um, the Bachelor word for paradise. Uh, we go into it in a bit more detail, but we do talk about the importance of languages um, and connection to, to land and place, especially for First Nations people. It sounds great. Yeah. Um, and then after that, unfortunately, Genevieve isn't in the studios with us this morning, but she has brought to us a really exciting interview. Um, it's with Josna. Jotna. Jotna. <laughs> Siddharth, uh, who is an actor, a self-taught artist, uh, an intersectional queer activist and writer. Um, and they're going to be talking about uh, a play that they would like to fundraise for, um, which, yeah, explores anti-caste feminist queer spaces, which is really cool. Sounds so good. Mm. Um, and then we are going to have, I'm going to be speaking with uh, Dakshayani Suryakumaran, who is the Tech Policy Director at Reset Australia. Um, and she will be telling us a bit about the role of social media in the upcoming elections and what we've seen, um, the issues with that in America specifically, what we can learn. Awesome. And then Evie at 8 o'clock um, will be bringing us an interview with Janine Kalik, who is a um, Palestinian uh, content creator um, who is formerly a, a newsroom journalist for a number of... Mm. companies um and i i think uh will be coming on the show to speak about um palestine in the news or the lack of um lack of reporting I yeah think lack around. of reporting yeah. lack of representation from palestinian journalists so that should be really interesting yeah so big show ahead mm. um stay with us we'll be right back after this Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. Possum Portraits is a non-profit bereavement care service supporting parents who have lost a baby to miscarriage, stillbirth and neonatal death. We provide families with hand-drawn, commemorative keepsake portraits of their baby free of charge. In support of our mission, we are hosting a community fundraising raffle. The prize draw will be held on November 6th. Prizes include a $300 Gorman online shop voucher, 
hampers, term memberships for kids' music and activity classes, and much more. To buy your raffle tickets, head to possumportraits.com.au forward slash events and win some great prizes while supporting an important cause. Possum Portraits is a 3CR supporter. So this morning, um, we're going to do things a little bit differently. Um, we are going to start the show with a track by Tando called Diaspora. And we're actually going to get the news headlines to you a bit later in the show. Um, so, yeah, Tando is a Zimbabwean-born and Nambe-based singer-songwriter um, who has been gracing stages around Australia with her electric presence and powerhouse vocals. This song is called Diaspora and it features Ruva. People are scared to go out to restaurants at night time because they're followed home by these gangs. Home invasion, cars are stolen, and we just need to call it what it is. Of course, it's African gang violence. Goes 
Rhymes again with a cloak of melanin looking like a weapon. Kids are genius, but warfare attacking his head. Diaspora speaking now, time to hear what's being said. If you move a little closer, you might see the heart you got inside of me. Got my dreams in my pocket. Ha, who are you to try to stop it? Hey, yeah. Special kind of love I give. Hey, yeah. Everybody has a right to live. Hey, yeah. It's all love, it's all love. It's all love, it's all love. Special kind of love. So that was Diaspora by Tando. Last week I spoke with Rose Barracliffe, bachelor woman, researcher and doctoral candidate about the reclamation of Gari as the official name for the UNESCO World Heritage Area, formerly known as Fraser Island. Rose spoke to me about the importance of Aboriginal languages and names and what Gari means to the Butchler community. This interview was inspired by Rose's recent article for The Conversation called Celebrating Gari, Why the Renaming of Fraser Island is About So Much More Than a Name. Well, thank you, Rose, for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast today. Could you please start by telling us a bit about yourself and the research that you're currently undertaking? Sure. Um, so I am, personally, I'm a bachelor person. Um, so our traditional country is what was known as Fraser Island um, and the adjoining coastline. And I am also a doctoral candidate at the University of the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. And my research um, is really focused on examining archives and archival practice and how archival practice impacts on historical narratives. So the, the decisions that are made in archives about how Indigenous peoples are represented in archives has a knock-on effect on, um, in what we know as history. Thank you. Uh, could you tell us a bit about the process of reclaiming Gari as the official place name? Well, I mean, I think it's a multi-pronged process. There's no, it's not a linear path by any means. Um, and I wasn't directly involved in this process of, of the name re repatriation. Um, but it's certainly been something that our community and our elders um, and people, elders who have passed now, have been asking for the name Gari to be reinstated for decades. Um, and it's something that had come up again and again through processes like native title where you know that's a negotiation process between the the claimant group and the government and there's no um there's no predetermined outcome of of native title it's up to each individual group to negotiate what they want um so that um had been part of that conversation 
but hadn't um, eventuated immediately when we got native title for the island, which happened in uh, 2014. So there's been various stages, I guess, of, of that name being reinstated. And um, part of that is um, was the National Park originally. Mm -hmm. um, Gari was, um, was the name reassigned to the National Park first. And then we just saw um, a week and a half ago, it was then applied to the World Heritage Area. So not interestingly, it, it hasn't been, they haven't come out and said, you know, we're changing the name of the island as far as, you know, the whole island. It's very specific in that it's, it is about the World Heritage Area and it is about the National Park. Now, those two areas cover the whole island and even the World Heritage Area extends beyond the island and includes the waters and some of the islands um, in between Gurry and the mainland. Um, so I guess it's kind of a, uh, it's a different way of going about it, um, about renaming a place and using, using other uh, political or environmental or other structures to be able to affect that renaming or reclaiming of the name. Um, you mentioned in your article, the conversation, this isn't the first time that this has happened. We've seen this with Uluru. It, it might seem quite small in, in some ways, but what does it mean for you to have traditional names reinstated? I mean, ultimately, it means that that um, our culture is being recognised and um, the pre-existence of the meaning of that that land and that place comes before colonization so when you you know when you give something an, a new name that that um completely ignores everything that came before that it is a way of effectively silencing that history as well so in some cases you know that's happened for different reasons and it but i think the the point is that you know, I th always think of Maya Angelou and she she had a quote that said, you know, do the best you can until you know better. And once you know better, do better. Um, and I think this is really a case of we know better now and we can do better. Um, we know what these names are. We know the First Nation um, that is associated with much of the land of what we now call Australia. Um, so we should be listening and and respecting what those communities want and it won't be the same necessarily for for each first nation that's something that needs to be understood and negotiated on a case-by-case -case basis i don't think there's really an excuse for not doing it mm. in day and age i mean you touched on this before but i wanted to um, I wanted to ask you about the role that language plays in truth telling and in and its links to, to Indigenous culture and sovereignty, maybe in a bit more detail, if you can. Sure. Um, I mean, I think language is incredibly important, not just within Australia's First Nations. I think whenever you travel to a different country and a different culture, you can't really understand that culture if you don't at least try to learn some of the language. Um, I think that language is an inherent part of any culture. Um, and what we're seeing in Australia today is um, language revitalization, which is really wonderful to see. Like I think if um, the Wiradjuri people are doing a 
great job at this. Um, and I, I see more and more of my Wiradjuri colleagues being able to speak um, an increasing amount of the, amount of the language. Um, and so much of that language and the place names really gives added depth of understanding to that place name. You know, like Gurry is not just, it doesn't just mean paradise. There's a whole backstory to, to that one word. Um, and then like with my research, you know, looking at archival documents and I see um, old place names and the meaning of it. If you know, if you know what that word means, you understand what that place is about as well. So I think where that ties into sovereignty is that that knowledge of that place has come from tens of thousands of years of living on that land. So that's why that, that word and that place name exists. Um, so, you know, there's always in every language, there's, there's, there's a history, there's a backstory to any word. It has so much more meaning. It's a really crucial part of, of culture, um, but it's also, it adds to the richness of that culture. I actually just finished reading um, Tara June Winter's novel. Which so has, good, is Yeah, yeah, which, which speaks to that exactly, the, the ties between language and, and sovereignty and, and land rights. And that book itself is actually a, a beautiful example of language revitalization, reconnection to culture, the process that she went through, um, that she just happened to end up in a, a language, a Wiradjuri language course, which inspired her to write this amazing book. So now this book is being, has won all these awards and it's being read by people around the world. And therefore they, the people who are reading this book, are learning about Wiradjuri culture as well. And so it's just, it's blossoming into so, something so much bigger than one little language class that she did. Not that they're little, but you know what I mean. It, it, it's kind of that um, butterfly effect where it grows into something so much more. Yeah, definitely. Speaking of names and, and meanings, I think a lot of people in this country don't take the time to reflect on and maybe interrogate the names that, that we're so used to seeing and, and, and saying. Could you tell us a bit about the name Fraser, where it comes from, the history of that? Yeah, so Fraser is the surname um, from Captain James Fraser and Eliza Fraser. So they were Captain James Fraser, the captain of a ship that was traveling north past the coast and got shipwrecked. And then part of the crew ended up on Gurry. And so they were taken in by the Bachelor people and moved down the island. Um, and, you know, there's very different um, perspectives on what that experience was like. Um, but certainly, in that day and age, Eliza Fraser, who was one of the few to survive long enough to get back to Moreton Bay penal colony at the time, um, <clears throat> it was her perspective that was, that was listened to and was taken up by the rest of the world. Her accounts, even at the time, people could see that her accounts were getting more and more sensational. The more attention she got, the more she embellished and made it made it a, you know a great tale of this horrible experience she had had and and um, how bachelor people were cannibals and and savages you know these are the words she she used 
Um, so this, this story about her experience on the island became her way of making money. So her husband had just died. Um, she's a woman in a world where women didn't work at that time, so your fortune was very much tied into marriage or, or family wealth. Or um, she, she capitalised on that. She ended up going back to London. She found a like a publisher and and they wrote this story and it became very sensational and she would in London she'd be telling her story and as she's telling her story she is getting people sponsoring her and like oh you poor woman and they're making all these contributions to her her um her living allowance essentially so she had built this narrative of her being a victim and and of course to be a victim you need you need a perpetrator and that perpetrator was the bachelor people. So there's differing accounts again of exactly how long she was on the island, but it wasn't long. For someone to have had so little time on the island, um, to have spoken so badly about the traditional owners of that country, for the island to be named after them, it's just, yeah, it, it doesn't seem right. And I think this is a, a problem that happens or is still prevalent around Australia, that we have these place names that valorise people who did horrible things. Do you think there is a growing movement, not just for the First Nations people here, but across the world? We see people tearing down colonial monuments, reclaiming traditional names. There does seem to be more and more happening in that regard do you would you say that that's the case yeah oh for sure mm. i just go back to i think um you know the impacts of colonization were were intense and, and severe and and have and are still playing out because we're still in australia we live in a colonized country that it's that is ongoing um but what is also true at the same time is that Indigenous peoples around the world um, have, I think, are having this reawakening or awakening and realising, hey, they haven't wiped us out. <laughs> we're still here. And not only that, um, we're, we're learning how this playbook works a little bit. Um, you know, if not from within our own specific countries, we're also seeing how colonisation has happened in other countries like Aotearoa or, or North America as well. Um, and, and learning from that and seeing what um, Indigenous groups around the world are doing. And, you know, that, that knowledge is, is growing, um, I think, exponentially right now. Um, and I know like in, in my, my sort of part of the world, my corner of the world is academia. Um, and I see my supervisor and their colleagues and when they were coming up through academia, there were so few Indigenous professors. Um, so it just made it really hard. It was really hard to be examined and for people to appreciate your work and understand what, you were, what your standpoint was. Um, but now there's all these amazing Indigenous academics in Australia doing really groundbreaking work. Um, and as they're coming up through the academy, they're 
they're mentoring so many Indigenous people underneath them as well, and I'm very fortunate to to be part of that. Um, so I just see there's a there's a you know an academic knowledge base growing, but there's also people working in every Indigenous people working in every sector across Australia right now. Um, there's there's no part of Australia politically or socially geographically that Indigenous people don't have a part in and asserting their roles in. Um, so I think that can only lead to, to that uh, re reclamation of agency in, in a faster and faster way every day. Definitely. Um, one last question I have for you is you, you said that you're researching archives and, and, and what that means for, for history in relation to Indigenous people. With moments like um, reclaiming Gari as the official name, do you think this will positively impact how history will be told in the future? Uh, yeah, obviously, I hope it will be. Mm. Um, I think archives have a huge role to play in this because they hold all the records of the colonial activity. Um, they hold less information from Indigenous perspectives because, frankly, they just weren't valued. Um, but even so, there's still a lot of information in archives that will be very helpful in this process of truth-telling um, and rec name recla reclamation, you know, that all of that, um, all of that has supporting documentation in the archives, for sure. Great. Well, thank you so much, Rose, for, for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast today. Thank you. That was Rose Barrowcliffe on the recent renaming of Fraser Island to Gari. If you would like to read Rose's article, please see our show notes later this morning for the link. You're listening to 3CR. We'll be right back after this. They say you a danger. I say that I am too. I say that I am too. I might be better than you. You say you a nice guy. You say you the one for me. You say I'm the one for you. You always got me confused. If I give you my heart, would you break it up now? Or would you protect it, baby? If I give you my heart, would you break it up now? Or would you protect it, baby? Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. Um, next up, we've got an interview that Jen did with Jyotsna Siddharth, who is an actor, self-taught artist, intersectional queer activist, and writer. Um, their practice spreads across intersections of social art activism, theater development in anti-caste feminist and queer spaces. Jen spoke to them about the clay and also a fundraiser set up to support the play. all the way from India. 
Jotsna is an actor, self-taught artist, intersectional queer activist and writer. Their practice spreads across intersections of social, art, activism, theatre, development in anti-caste, feminist and queer spaces. Their interests are multidisciplinary, experimental and fluid. From embodied practice, conducting workshops and building community dialogue to supporting systems for making multiple medium work collaborative, intersectional and inclusive. Jotsna pushes for a better representation of Dalit and queer stories in the media and is also the brainchild behind Clay, which is a play discussing caste and body. They're on the show today to talk about Clay and also a fundraiser that was set up uh, to support the play. Thank you so much for joining us, Jotsna. Thank you, Genevieve, for having me. Absolutely. I'm so happy that you can join us from India as well. Um, all right. To begin, I wanted to just start off with a rough overview um, and talk about yourself. Uh, I guess what sort of creative work you do and what inspires you to do it? Um, so I um, do multiple things, as you also introduced, and um I'm interested in, in different forms and formats. And um, I also feel I am a person with low attention span. So I'm always intrigued by new things and, and, and want to create um, intersections between, between all of them. Um, and I'm an actor, I've been doing theater for a, for a while, but recently I started writing this play, um, which is called Clay. Uh, yeah, and I wanted to perform and bring the stories of of my community of of anti caste discourse and and the queer people um, through through this play and um, yeah and 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 perform and and see how how it is received. Yeah, definitely. I think um, maybe it would be good uh, to explain exactly just for our listeners. I'm not sure if they've ever heard um, anti caste feminist. Uh, feminism or that kind of um, realm of uh, discourse. Would you be able to explain exactly what that means for our audiences? Yeah. So in in India and also in in the West, um, uh, it is an assumption that uh, Indians are just Indians, but um, Indians are also a kind of uh, divided into different castes, and and that's a social hierarchy and uh, benefits and privileges that individuals receive because of the caste that they are born in, and. Um, uh, a lot of uh, people who are in different countries, uh, but Indians are mostly from the dominant castes. And um, how do I say it's not exactly the same, but but they did a bit, but they enjoy a certain kind of social privilege and sanctions um, similar to white people in the US. It's not exactly the same, but just to put it simply, this uh, and caste is is a system of oppression so i belong to a community which comes from uh, a dalit uh, caste which which is uh, considered to be untouchable and and they're sort of lower in the strata of of the caste hierarchy within india and um, so asserting building resistance um, and talking about our systemic issues and oppression that has continued for decades is is a anti-caste discourse and resistance. Yeah, I think it's such an important topic to talk about. And I think it leads on to, I guess, where I want to 
focus on clay, which is uh, your play that you wrote yourself. Could you tell us what the driving force was uh, when you decided to create or sorry, write clay? Yes, um, I think clay. Uh, so I started writing uh, clay as just a form of um, anecdotes and experiences that I've had. I, I do not find enough um, actors from my community who are also vocal about their social identities and location within the theater space. And very often there is a domination within the theater acting landscape in India where there is a, a more sort of um, representation of the dominant caste. So, so you often don't hear either the stories or narratives of uh, people from Dalit community uh, and also not enough opportunities for actors from the community to find stories uh, to tell or perform. Uh, there are not uh, enough stories of our community that is being written by people from within the community. So this, this play uh, is, is very important for many of those reasons. I wanted to also talk about the anti-caste queer discourse, but not in the way it is currently being talked about, to also see people as people and but to also kind of recognize their systemic oppression that they continue to go through. So clay um, is um, part anecdotal, part fictional uh, play that talks about the journey of um, Dalit queer woman in an urban city, but it also um, brings other intersections and stories of uh, people and their childhood and memories and, and, and such. Yeah, I think that's such a beautiful way of collaborating intersectionality, bringing it to like a human level and a lived experience level, which is obviously your lived experience as well. Uh, you did mention briefly, but maybe you could go into a little bit more detail without giving too much away, exactly the storyline behind Clay. And you kind of mentioned as well some of the themes, but would you like to just elaborate a little bit on some of the storyline and the themes? Yeah, um, so uh, Clay itself is 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 a symbolic uh, representation of earth and body. And the community that I come from is very much involved in the physical labor and also um, uh, cremating dead bodies and a lot of other work that that is kind of reserved for the community I come from because of the caste system. And, and when I use the metaphor of clay or earth, it, it talks about the whole cycle of how of life and death and how the community is very much part of uh, contributing to society from some from from birth to death and and doing all that kind of emotional intellectual physical labor that other people don't want to uh, or don't do it anyway um so in the play i'm talking about it's a devised play so i'm working with my body to create material and and then use that material to to give shape uh, in form of performance and while also substantiating that with the stories um with the narrative and with the uh, with the very active engagement of the audience so it breaks the fourth wall as well where audience is not just watching the play but also 
participating in it from the beginning till till the end. Yeah. And maybe just on a personal level, is there anything that you felt was important or almost even cathartic about writing clay? Like, was it an enjoyable experience, did you find? I think uh, writing and also devising while I'm working with my uh, body is, is ex- yeah, you're right. It's extremely, and I've also realized it's an extremely meditative, meditative and cathartic process because when you're working with your body, you realize and, and you get more conscious about the trauma that's stored in your body and it comes out in very different forms. So, you know, breakdowns and also um, realizations of the collective trauma and collective memory of violence that the community has gone through for decades. and and the discrimination, it all is stored in your body. So it's, so there is an individual uh, trauma, but it, there's also a collective trauma and all kind of comes out in, in a theater space when you're engaging with your body and when you're also going through the script. For me, theater is, a, is that healing um, space which allows repressed, suppressed emotions to come out and use that to tell a story. And I that's why I find theater very powerful and I find clay to be um, one of the most important work that I probably will do and hopefully will also um, create and open that space for other people to also find resonance and understand this system of oppression. Yeah, definitely. And I think you really hit the nail on the head with the beauty of art in terms of, you know, personally and relating to the audience. And I wanted to mention as well, I was reading um, some of your description on clay and it uh, mentioned, you know, it's one of the first few independent plays performed to center anti-caste queer narrative in Hindi and English. And I guess I just wanted to ask why are creative projects like this so important for you personally and I guess for society more broadly? I think um, there is still a a very active invisibilization and erasure of um, Dalit community uh, and their assertions and their voices, especially in the creative spaces, because there's always been a distinction that's being made between high art and low art. And high art was obviously always thought to be uh, performed and, and, and reserved for people who come from caste privileged locations. But when you look at the history of performance, um, Dalit people have always been at the forefront of creating that history of performance as well in India. Uh, and I'm assuming South Asia as well. But uh, what happens is that um, there are very few grants and there are very few resources that are available, especially in in theater spaces that would um, support this kind of work because um, there is also inherent caste bias and um, lack of interest to support actors and theater makers from marginalized communities. Um, There is also a lack of representation within the theater spaces from my community. And that makes it very difficult to to find support for this kind of work. So so this work is important for many of those reasons, but also to create this history of culture in making, while also expanding the resource to to share that uh, there has to be a collective ownership of of a play, of a work like this, because it's... um, because the system of oppression is not an individual uh, burden to 
resolve and it cannot be. So a work like this must find collective ownership and resources so that we can partake into that process of co-creating this performance and not just, just going there to watch as an audience. So I think it's trying to do multiple things through this performance. Yeah, definitely. And I think that leads on to um, focusing on the fundraiser, which has been organized for the play, especially your mention on um, not making it such an individualized thing and making it a shared thing. Um, what does the fundraiser, I guess, aim to do for Clay and why is it important for people to support theater like Clay? I think to, uh, again, expand the um, theatre and acting landscape to say that there are people from different marginalised identities and their lives and stories have not found space. So when you support work like this, you also allow for different kind of stories and realities to emerge. And um, this resource is used um, to actually pay people a decent amount in the theater because in India, um, uh, theater is often voluntarily, people don't get paid and a lot of, um, or they get paid very poorly. So, so this resource will go to the production and to actually uh, paying people who are involved in the whole process of theater making. And, and at the same time, um, have a platform to to watch new stories, to watch interesting stories, to, to learn about society as a whole and not just only focus on certain kind of stories or only stories of people who come from extremely privileged positions all the time. So I think it kind of diversify our understanding of how we imagine society as well. I was just going to say stories are one of the most powerful tools that we can use. And I think, yeah, re-centering the story on people that haven't had the opportunity to tell their stories is also something that's truly important as well so I really commend you on that it sounds absolutely amazing I wish I could watch it live but I can't because I'm in Australia um how can people donate where can they how can they support you so um there so there's an organization called the rights collective um which is based in the UK um they have very kindly and generously um uh, committed to raising funds for clay so there is a link in their bio where people can access and donate. Um, South Asian Today is also very generously um, have come forward to raise money. Um, and they've also put the link in their bio. So if people are interested in um, donating uh, and if people are, who are outside India wish to donate can find the link either at the Rights Collective uh, Instagram bio or the South Asia today um, and both of these organizations and people are doing amazing work so um, supporting their work uh, as well is is definitely something I would recommend. Yeah it sounds like an absolutely fabulous play um, the whole process is like I've been blown away by how much thought and effort and obviously it's going to a really great cause and uh, we'll pop the details for the fundraiser up on our website as well so people can donate uh, but thank you so much for joining us Jotsna it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you Thank you so much, Genevieve, for speaking with me and actually uh, giving space to Clay and to talk about it um, on your uh, radio show. I think this has been absolutely important and exciting for me, and I really appreciate this conversation. That was 
Jotsna Siddharth speaking with Genevieve about um, a number of different things, um, uh, but especially looking at Clay, the play that they wrote and the fundraiser set up to support the play. If you are interested in um, donating, we can pop the link into our show notes a bit later. Um, Stay tuned, though. We've got some more interviews coming up right after this. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR. Uh, Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, Next up, we will be speaking with... Dakshayani Suryakumaran, who is the Tech Policy Director at Reset Australia. Reset Australia works to raise awareness and advocate for better policy to address digital threats to Australian democracy. Um, Leading up to the federal election in 2022, Reset Australia is calling for the government to mandate platforms to publish an election live list of the most viral misinformation that has has the potential to have a serious societal impact. Welcome to the show, Dakshayani. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being on the show. Um, so as I just mentioned, we um, so in the lead up to the next federal election, Reset Australia is urging Facebook and other social media platforms to act more transparently. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what Facebook's role and other social media platforms' role is in the election and why transparency is important? Yeah, great question. So um, this is all coming out in the context of a whistleblower, an ex-employee named Frances Haugen, who used to actually work on election integrity internally to the company. And so she's made some pretty explosive claims, um, kind of calling out Facebook for its role in the capital insurrection um, and basically has formed uh, the basis of a huge kind of series that the Wall Street Journal is doing right now called the Facebook Files and highly encourage people to check that out. So I guess uh, in addition to to that, it's important to see this recent revelation in the context of Facebook's long history of being complicit in kind of undermining elections. And this dates back, you know, all the way back to August 2016, the Philippines election, the the 2016... um, kind of um, evidence that came out about major foreign interference in the US election, Cambridge Analytica in 2018, um, and I could go on, you know. So there's there's several examples of how Facebook has uh, been involved in kind of uh, this kind of impact on, on election, electoral integrity. And so I guess in the context of Australia, there's actually also pretty clear examples of how uh, how Facebook um, has been involved. Um, so, you know, one one really obvious one that, that many will be familiar with is that, uh, you know, Facebook's uh, uh, failure to remove the bogus death tax claims and, you know, was called out by the outgoing um, 
chairman of the ACCC, Rod Sims, for that, and, and there's several other examples that I can point to. And so I guess transparency is really number one for us because there's this huge information asymmetry where platforms such as Facebook have very, very deep insights into what's going on on their platforms, obviously, but those outside, so researchers, policy think tanks, the general public, everyone, doesn't have much of a view into what's going on. Mm. And um, basically, they're, they're operating in a bit of a regulatory vacuum, right? Like, um, And so, so there's, there's much stricter regulation required, but we see that transparency is kind of the first step to accountability. Like, let's have a peek inside, let's have a look at the problem, and, and then let's um, assess what we can do about it, because it's quite a serious problem. There's a lot at stake. Yeah, it's interesting you mention accountability. Um, I think, you know, for our listeners and for those of us who aren't working in this space, um, how what is the way that Facebook kind of does get away with, um, you know, facing any real consequences? Because we've seen even in the pandemic that, you know, Facebook has been used to spread misinformation about COVID. Um, You know, divisive content has been especially popular on social media during the pandemic. How do they um, sort of evade accountability? Yeah, that's a great uh, question. And I guess this theories that the Wall Street Journal has just done has really shone a light on that. And so, you know, the the harms that they're causing are so serious. How is it that they've gotten away with it? And I guess there's a pattern that kind of emerges when you look at the, uh, the various kind of facts that are revealed through that series. And what seems to happen is, you know, Facebook is pretty good at conducting fairly rigorous research into these harms. So they'll hire the best of the best global experts to look into these things. And those researchers will produce pretty extensive research about what needs to be done. And so, you know, for example, we've known, Facebook has known that um, their uh, platform's algorithms, so for, since 2015, which is a fair while back, they've known that um, actually the most... Uh, shared content is the most sensational and extreme content and and that's the type of content that therefore increases engagement and is the most profitable. So they've known that for a very, very long time. Um, So this research happens. Basically, Facebook ignores the findings and recommendations because most of the recommendations involve reducing user engagement and therefore profitability. And then um, essentially a PR crisis hits, right? So there's been a series of whistleblowers um, over the the last um, decade or more, really. And so um, it, it's usually a PR crisis. And then Facebook acts, but it doesn't necessarily act in a way that's commensurate with the scale of the actual problem. So it might do a minor tweak here or there, but it doesn't really um, get to a structural change. And I guess another thing to add to why Facebook's been able to get away with this is that uh, the the kind of norm in the the regulation space um, in Australia and globally as well is really this idea of self-regulation. So this kind of naive idea that that these, you know, um, these platforms that have market capitalizations of over a trillion dollars are, are going to be interested in regulating themselves. And so um, in, in the context of Australia, we've seen that uh, through the this voluntary disinformation code that many of the big platforms have signed up to, including Facebook. But, um, you know, there, there are questions about whether that has the potential to create the, the change that we're really looking for. 
Yeah, and so in、um, relation to the upcoming federal election,、um, Research Australia is calling for the government to mandate platforms to publish an election live list of the most viral information.、Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So this is one of the many、uh, measures that we'd like to see implemented、um, in the lead up to the federal election. But one of the most critical is exactly the election live list, and I guess it's a live list of election-related mis and disinformation,、um, so content that's trending on social media.、Um, and so this is basically forcing digital platforms to collect, format, and make accessible that information in a way that is. In a queryable kind of database, so that it can actually be analysed and assessed. Because、uh, currently we we just don't have that. So so it, it feels like a bit a basic ask, but it's we don't have that right now, and it's really critically important so that those with expertise can、um, can basically do analysis and and do rapid response measures to kind of tackle、uh, the the misinformation as it arises. And so we we kind of see that as being、um, administered. Uh, through、um, a range of regulatory um, bodies, um, including the AEC. Right, and Reset is also calling on Facebook to reveal、um, which Australian politicians are currently on Facebook's whitelist, known as XCheck.、Yeah. Um, can you explain a little bit about what XCheck is and how it works? Yeah, sure. So basically,、um, XCheck or、um, CrossCheck or the whitelist. It's one of the、uh, major revelations of the series that I mentioned that the Wall Street Journal is doing. And basically, how it works is that it exempts high-profile users from the content moderation kind of rules, like the community standards.、Um, and so, this includes people like you know celebrities, sporting celebrities, very celebrities, politicians, etc. So,、um, basically, it just like allows those who already have Uh, huge followings to amass even greater followings with with less barriers,、um, and it it kind of holds these high profile accounts to lower standards, even though they're the ones that have the greatest reach and and therefore the greatest risk associated with them.、Um, and I guess you know the Facebook has has stated、um, that they've made efforts in、um, the US. To ensure that challenges as well as incumbents are included in the program,、um, and you know、uh, that's, I, I guess that's fine. But but we're not clear on what what that means for Australia, and obviously this is a substantial advantage to incumbents. And so we would like to know who in Australia is on that list. Yeah,、um, that's. Yeah, it's it's a it's really important. I think that for、um, the average kind of person that uses social media to know and understand、um, the role that Facebook does play, because even if you know you're just using social media as a way to share with your family and friends, this information is still getting to you.、Um, you know, your feed is still being programmed in a certain way,、um, and I think it's super important to have someone. Explain the importance of social media, especially coming up to the next election. So, thank you so much for that, Dakshini.、Um, if our listeners do want to find out a bit more, where can they go? Yeah, so they can go to the、um, Reset Australia website. That's probably the best、um, place to go. So that's just、um, au. reset. tech. Great, and we'll pop that in our show notes for anybody wanting to find out a bit more.、Um, that's all we have time for today, Dakshani. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Bye.
That was Dakshayani Suryakumaran from Reset Australia, um, and we will be right back after this. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune into Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. Welcome back to 3CR. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast. It is 8am. We're going to go to a track now. This is by Hachi, who is based in Mianjin and is a pop artist. This is her song, uh, This Enchanted.
So that was This Enchanted by Hachi. This week, a new book was released through Monash University Press titled Dateline Jerusalem. It's by John Lyons, who has been the head of investigative journalism for the ABC since 2017 and comes off the back of years spent as a correspondent in the Middle East. It details the story of why many editors and journalists in Australia are in fear of upsetting right-wing supporters of Israel, who are often bundled together and described as the pro-Israel lobby. Janine is a Palestinian content creator. Um, currently on Darug Country in Sydney, and a former newsroom journalist for nine years across News Corp, ABC, Crikey, and has been published in The Guardian, Vice and the Sydney Morning Herald. Janine Kalik is one of the journalists whose experiences are not only documented in this book, but who is being one of the most outspoken voices about Australian media's self-censorship. Janine, welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Amy. Um, This book comes off the back of international backlash against media coverage of the May 2021 um, Israel-Hamas violence. Uh, On this show and uh, across all of 3CR, we've talked about the silence of Australian media during this time quite a lot with other Palestinian activists. But do you feel like this could be about to change now? Look, I am usually quite cynical and I do hope that things change, that, I mean... The stories that you'll read in, in John Lyon's new book with Monash um, University, it, it's been there, it's been out there, it's been spoken about so many times um, over the years. And, I mean, people who work in the media and who work in newsrooms have been privy to this for such a long time. Um, so I guess I do hope it does shift things now that, the public is perhaps slightly more aware, but then again, I mean, a book like this will only reach certain pockets of, of the public, um, and it is really dependent on, on how media outlets, you know, decide to to move ahead um, with, you know, covering a a story or explosive findings like these. So, yeah, so far it's only been <laughs> it's only been you guys at this point. <laughs> So, which is great, which is amazing. But I think my concern is that you're right, that it will, like, that that it's the purvey of, you know, academic uh, sources or communities that have to keep on drawing attention to it. I know for as long as I, I can recall having been a follower of your work for many years now, you've been one of the most vocal Australian journalists about a problem that's been endemic in Australia um, in this silence of talking about Palestine, often at great personal and professional cost to yourself. Um, I wanted to ask you how it feels now to see this this ongoing conversation. It must be so tiring to constantly have to battle to finally break it through through the through to the mainstream. Um, I first read about this book um, in this weekend. Uh, an excerpt was published in the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, I, I realise you probably are a bit cynical about it, but do you feel like this is a start of a conversation where we're actually naming names and understanding why the silence is happening? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'll put my cynicism aside for a moment. <laughs> I think this is definitely a watershed moment. I, I can't imagine something like this being published, you know, say a year ago. And I mean, earlier this year, and when I, when I spoke to to you as well, I mean, the, the, I suppose, um, the revelations that the public was happening, uh, was having, sorry, collectively, um, when the onslaught on Gaza was happening earlier this year, 
um, that was that was a shift. That was sort of an unforeseen shift. Um, you know, this has been happening for seventy three years. The the you know continued expropriation of, of Palestinian land and um, you know the the massacring. So I. I mean, many of us, many Palestinians didn't see that the conversation would um, finally finally be challenging, you know, the status quo and, and the narrative that we've all, you know, many people have been fed for so long um, and made to believe. So I think, yes, in a way, um, it's definitely, it's a relief to see it on paper, that's for sure. And... I'd been grappling with it for such a long time and, and so many friends and, and former colleagues have told me to to write it all down and to release it. But it's just one of those things where I I mean, none of us want this to be happening to us. Um, I don't, you know, fundamentally, I don't want to be in the eye of um, some storm <laughs> in regards to, to lobbyists. No, it's really exhausting. Um, but I mean, I I saw it firsthand. Um, I experienced it firsthand, and there just comes a point where you can't stay quiet anymore. And yeah, it did come at great at great cost. Um, but I I feel like that's just the price of you know speaking out, and also you know the price of being Palestinian. Um, I. I'm aware of, you know, many friends and, and acquaintances and and people here and abroad who have paid um, with their livelihoods. Um, one such person, you know, Stephen Salata in, in the U.S., um, he was a tenured professor and was fired. Uh, he's Palestinian, was fired for um, saying Israel's an apartheid state. Um, earlier this year, Emily Wilde at AAP, um, it was you know, quote-unquote uncovered that she um, was active in, you know, pro-Palestinian human rights and self-determination activism on campus. She had just started a new job at the AAP, um, and she's a young Jewish-American woman, and she was let go, um, you know, a week into her new job. And, and this had happened when, in the midst of what was happening in Gaza and when, Israel and the occupation forces dropped a bomb on the media tower that held AAP offices. Um, so it's just, it's just kind of terrifying, um, the fact that uh, it's just, you know, I, I'm, I'm constantly, I mean, not to get too, you know, um, I guess sentimental here, but I, and I've said this before, say publicly on Twitter, but my heart is constantly racing. I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yeah. Um, I don't know what's going to happen next. So Yeah. yeah. It, it's like you you mentioned quite a few examples of other other activists or just other journalists losing their livelihoods. And it really seems like um Israeli Palestinian like not being able to report and talk honestly about um, the issue. It's the single issue which the media won't cover with the rigour that it deserves and which it covers with every other issue. And it seems like, you know, journalists constantly face the consequences for it. And it's and the consequence of that is also that the Australian public 
isn't properly informed and we don't have, like, you know, people don't have any idea until activists do put their head above the parapet to talk about it. Um, it it's, you know, it, it's quite shocking to sort of realise that there is an entire section of international news that we're just completely being, you know, ripped off from. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. And, I mean, people should be um, extremely, you know, outraged and, and concerned Again, earlier this year, um, Human Rights Watch made determinations that Israel is committing crimes of apartheid. That wasn't reported. That wasn't reported in the ABC. The Australian government, Scott Morrison and Maurice Payne, um, tried to intervene and stop um, the International Criminal Court um, investigation into um, crimes against humanity in Palestine, and on at the behest of Israel, the Israeli government, the Australian government tried to intervene, um, and this has been documented, and there's been some reporting abroad, but not in Australia. Um, and the reason why, I mean, in my experience and when I was there, unfortunately, there has been, you know, that people conflate criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism, and that's how, you know, pro-Israel, that's how Zionists, um, you know, they weaponize the, the racism um, and the, you know, horrendous nature of anti-Semitism with criticizing Israel. And nobody wants to be called an anti-Semite. And, you know, I recall one journalist, um, a Hamish MacDonald, in, in this book, um, not the Project Hamish MacDonald, another one, mm-hmm. who worked at the Saturday paper um, as the world editor, who was told, you know, Israel and Palestine is the one issue you can't touch. So this is that Schwartz Media, Saturday paper, the so-called, you know, progressive media empire, um, getting direct, you know, directions um, not to touch Palestine and not to be critical of Israel. So... Yeah, it is. It is. It's always been the one issue where people are too afraid to talk. And, you know, fundamentally, it comes down to, you know, anti-Palestinian racism and the idea that, you know, the Zionist settler colonial state is, you know, beacon of democracy and Palestinian, you know, like myself and my family and, you know, many others who were exiled you know, in 1948 and still are displaced until this day. I have family living in refugee camps, um, are barbarians and terrorists and, you know, are actually originally from the Arabian Peninsula. So, yeah, there's a, you know, and we've discussed this before, um, that there is truly a problem with progressives, um, except on Palestine, we call them pets. You know, people who are progressive on so many different issues, you know, on Indigenous rights issues here, um, on refugees. And for some reason, there's a dissonance and they are unable to um, reconcile the fact that Palestinian um, struggle, the Palestinian cause, is an Indigenous rights issue, is a refugee issue. I mean, the highest number of refugees, a stateless people in this world. And it's not complicated. Yeah, it's not. (laughs) not. But you'll often hear that. And that's what happens in newsrooms. And, you know, I've been told so many times, you know, even at the ABC, from 
you know, I recall a time where when a chief of staff at ABC um, in the New South Wales newsroom said to me, I had pitched a story that, you know, was related to, to Palestine and it was localised. And it was newsworthy. You know, I have a good sense of, you know, not to gas myself up, but I have a good sense of what's newsworthy. <laughs> um, I'm not just pitching anything. And, you know, her words were, you know, we don't want to upset. And, and she, she used the term as well, quote-unquote Jewish lobby. She didn't even say, you know, the Israel lobby or, you know, Zionist lobby, which is what I would call them because they don't, you know, represent, um, you know, Jewish people in their entirety. Um, so, yeah, and the story was killed. And so many instances have happened like that. Um, and it's just really insidious. And I've had, you know, in, in John Lyon's um, new book as well, um, it, it goes into some detail about the time that, you know, Israeli diplomats went to the Australian and had a, you know, in-person meeting and I was on the agenda. Oh, wow. Um, it happened at the ABC, the Israeli ambassador, um, many of the Zionist lobby groups here in Australia also um, were having many meetings with my editors time and time and time again. And, um, yeah, it just, it left my editors often, my bosses, with no other option but to to manage me out so I wouldn't, you know, it wasn't a direct sort of, you know, we're letting you go because the pressure is becoming too much. But just making... Um, the work environment so hostile that I just said I'd had enough. And for somebody who's generally really stubborn and and steadfast, um, it it broke me. Yeah, multiple times. It, it, it's it's one of those things that like you know they they can't say it outright, but it has to be massaged into happening. Uh, and it really sort of disabuses the idea of a free press. Um, that Australia prides itself on, at least, especially in progressive spaces, you know, talking about being fearless and um, mm. being able to publish without fear or favour. Um, one thing that I was thinking about in the publication of this book, it's, it is, it does feel like um, it is a start towards allies to Palestinian causes actually standing up and defending and speaking up about these issues um, I'm sure, you know, as you've spoken about quite a bit here, it's very exhausting to constantly have to reiterate the same things over and over again and not feel listened to and not feel like, you know, people are taking you seriously in terms of, you know, how this is affecting people's livelihoods and the press as a whole, the chilling effect that it has. Um, it, it's it's good to finally see um, non-Palestinians actually doing the work um, and bringing these issues to light. Mm-hmm especially like, you know, for supposedly progressive outlets not doing this as well? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I agree with your point that it's, it's good to see non-Palestinians doing the work. But, you know, I, fellow Palestinians and I news about this, you know, quite a bit. Um, and we sort of are, you know, frustrated insofar that um, when it is non-Palestinians, you know, that is when credibility is, you know, lent. That's when people are much more willing to listen. When, you know, non-Palestinians, you know, for, you know, as incredible, um, you know, and important as this work by John Lyons is. And, you know, he was a former colleague and he's, you know, a, he's a hard-hitting journalist. 
and he's great and he does report without fear or favour. But I think it's worth reflecting on the fact that it it takes someone like John Lyons and and you know even many you know anti-Zionist Jewish allies as well. Yeah. Um, to, to say something, to say the things that we've been saying for so long, for us to sort of be taken seriously, for people to feel less afraid, you know. Um, and I think that feeds into the idea that um, listening to Palestinians or um, supporting the Palestinian cause um, or that Palestinians existing in and of itself is, you know, you know anti-Semitic and, and it's, a, it's a dangerous thing to go down. Um, so, I mean, it's, it is good. It's great. And, and that's what we want. But at the same time, it's, um, it's, still, quite, it's still quite frustrating. It's still quite upsetting um, that we have ways to go. Um, oh, that, absolutely. Just like yeah. the, not being taken seriously. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, thank you so much, Janine, for joining us on the show today. Uh, you can follow Janine on social media at J-E-N-N-I-N-E-A-K on Twitter and also purchase uh, Dateline Jerusalem either directly from Monash University Publishing or through all good bookstores. Uh, This is a subject we're very passionate about keeping the conversation going in both discussing Australian media's self-censorship on Israel and Palestine and amplifying Palestinian writers and activists ourselves. So thank you very much, Janine. I'm sure we'll speak to you again soon and stay tuned for more over the next few weeks. Thanks so much, Evie. It's was an honour to be speaking to you this morning. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. I was just speaking to Janine Kalik just then, um, talking about the silence of Australian media, um, talking about Israel and Palestine. Uh, It was just a wonderful interview and just really great to hear her speak so passionately about it. Yeah, that was such an important discussion, um, an ongoing discussion about um, not only uh, publishing stories about Palestine in the news, but actually listening to... Palestinian journalists and activists um, and taking taking them seriously, which was a point that Janine made, um, yeah, in, in your interview there, which was really good. Well, um, we've sort of come to nearly the end of the show, but we thought we'd talk about some news headlines first. Yeah, um, there is, I think, uh, a petition going around at the moment which uh, basically is urging the Australian government to uh, fund gender affirmation surgery for people, um, which currently costs people up to $30,000. And obviously, you know, the the petition already has um, 
almost 70,000 signatures. So it's clear that people don't agree that uh, people should be paying for their own gender-affirming surgeries. Um, we uh, strongly encourage all our listeners to sign the petition. We will pop a link in our show notes um, later today. So head on over and sign the petition. It's a government website petition as yeah. well, which means that policymakers specifically will see this petition. Uh, it can be, it will be seen in Parliament. It's really like these kind of surveys are really important because it means that you know the people who make these make the policy will get to see it up front and understand how important the issue is. Uh, it's also gotten way, way, way more signatures than all the other like anti-vaxxer yeah. <laughs> surveys and everything that are there at the moment. So I'm really happy about that. Exactly. Um, another news headline that has we've just recently um, seen this morning is that Indigenous woman Charlene Warrior, who has been missing for two weeks, um, has been found her body has been found um and there's a bit of discussion on twitter around how this is just another indigenous person who was not um mentioned in the media people are saying they didn't know she was missing until this morning um until her body was found and people are kind of drawing parallels to um gabby petito in america who is a white social media influencer who went missing um, and received significant global coverage, including here, whereas Charlene didn't. Um, yeah, very... Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's it, it's part of that conversation, you know, it, related to the conversation that Janine and Evie were having before in terms of who is listened to... Um, whose stories get airtime and um, we know that here in this media landscape uh, First Nations people are not given enough airtime, if any at all, um, or if there is reporting it's very um, always negative stereotypes. So, um, yeah, sending solidarity to uh, Charlene's family and community, if, if that um, this story has caused you distress, um, please reach out to Lifeline on 131114. Um, Evie and I were sort of talking about this the other day, um, just another, I guess, more heartwarming <laughs> animal story. Maybe, Evie, if you want to start us off on oh. this. There's, um, I'm sure some of our listeners probably already know about this, but there is a building, a skyscraper in Collins Street, which has been home to peregrine falcons for the last couple of years. Um, so much so that they've actually sort of set up a proper nesting box and everything that's, you know, allows them to come back every single year. And this year they have four chicks that have all hatched. And they it's so are cute. so cute. They're so cute. <laughs> they, they look like, I was saying this to you, they look like Disney birds. <laughs> like they do not look real at all they're so cute they're so funny I, I i saw like i was watching a little clip of the mum bringing back like a dead pigeon for them like you know just to <laughs> chew on and to feed to them it was just like it was wonderful it's like better than anything david attenborough's got to show <laughs> <laughs> but i got really invested in them last year because um i think four is the most chicks she's ever had in that nesting box mm. and last year she had three and all three survived and i was deeply invested in their well-being because usually like you know they have a couple of chicks and maybe one or two doesn't make it to like fledgling 
um, but all of them made it last year. It's, and I, I can't I can't get invested in all four of them. <laughs> um, they are very cute though, and I and uh, it's totally fair that you've <laughs> become so invested in these chicks. Um, you can actually watch a live stream, is that right? Of Yes. Of the nest. Um, we'll put a link in the show notes, but um, the uh, Mervac, which is one of the sponsors, has put like a YouTube um, uh, clip of like the top of the skyscraper where you can see their comings and goings. And also like during the night, you can see them in night vision. It's really cool. Wow. <laughs> that reminds me, actually, there's um, my, fa- <laughs> my favorite time of the year is voting for the Australian bird of the year. Oh, yes, of yeah. course. And um yeah, it's currently open and I'm absolutely conflicted between um, the pink robin and the tawny frogmas. <laughs> is the gang gang still in the race? Because that's... I, yeah, yeah, the gang gang oh, is there. good. Okay, because that's my favourite. I love how heated it gets. I've constantly like seen people arguing about it and making like the case for their favourite bird being up front. It's so good. I know, and I, I'm like, I vote for the tawny frogmas every year because they are so weird looking. <laughs> they look like little weird muppets. And the chicks are just balls of fluff. Um, so I'm a big fan. And they never win. All right. Well, I'm sold. I'll, I'm going to go yes. onto the website after this and vote for them just for you, Carnegie. Thank you so much. <laughs> they deserve it. Um, I think maybe this is all we have time for this today. This is it. Yeah. yeah. We've come to the end of our show. Um, so quick recap. Yeah. So we started off the show today um, listening to an interview that I did with Rose Barracliffe about renaming Gari as the official name for what was formerly known as Fraser Island. And then Jen did an interview with Jyotsna Siddharth um, about her play um, Clay, which is uh, goes about intersectional queer um, and caste-related matters in India. Mm. Um, and then I spoke with Dakshayani Surya Kumaran from Reset Australia about Facebook's role in the upcoming federal election. And bringing up the rear, I was talking up to, talking to Janine Kalik, um, talking about the silence of Australian media in covering Israel and Palestine. And that's our show for today. Um, stay tuned to 3CR and tune in for the rest of the breakfast shows um, for the rest of the week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.